guilt and shame, I'll get to the image on the screen here in just a second. Guilt and shame are, are big deals for us emotionally, a sense of guilt or shame. Guilt usually is, is that I've done something wrong. Shame is more of that sense that I am something wrong. And some cultures are based primarily on things like guilt and shame. So guilt and shame are the hammers to keep us in line, or they're the clubs if we get out of line. But they're powerful tools. And you see this all the time. And in the U.S., um, kind of in a way that's odd historically, we have taken to reveling in the guilt and shame of others. As long as it's not ours, it's okay and it's entertainment. I think this started in the maybe as early as the 60s, but for sure the 70s and 80s with the daytime talk shows. You know, they, they come into the Oprah world and you get people on screen and they're basically, they're just airing their dirty laundry, their, their guilt and their shame. And this has reached a peak. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the television show called Cheaters. I ran across an episode, part, part of an episode just this last week. And so this is the deal. The setup is this, that the Cheaters television crew, they have a person in their sights and someone has told them, I think my spouse or my significant other is cheating on me. They tell the TV crew. The TV crew secretly shadows that suspected person. And then when they catch them in that moment of infidelity, no kidding, the cameras roll, the TV lights come up, and they catch that person in the moment of their indiscretion with that other person. So, so in their moment of darkness, their secret sin, their guilt, their shame, the lights come up, the cameras roll, and then the person who notified Cheaters TV crew they come in and they make their accusation. They make their case against their spouse or their significant other. And the whole thing is just about airing this sense of guilt and shame. And usually, you can imagine, this is, this is absolutely unlooked for, for these folks. And, and suddenly, they're in the bright lights and the cameras are rolling and they're caught and there's no place to run. Now, they often do run. They, they get in cars, they drive away as fast as they can, you name it, but... They do run. It's painful to watch. I caught part of this just last week. Now, there was a variation on this theme a couple thousand years ago. It wasn't produced by TV show. It was produced by the, yeah, it's not getting me anything, guys. It was produced by uh, the religious establishment. And this episode was called The Woman Caught in Adultery. And, I, and let me say this carefully without being pornographic, seriously. When we walk through this story, I want you to imagine what this was like for this gal, okay? What was it like to be exposed? What was it like for my guilt and my shame to suddenly be brought out into the light of day where there's no escaping it? It's as if you're in cheaters, she's in cheaters, and suddenly the cameras are rolling. What's that like? And this is the deal. Part of what, what I'm after here, guys, this morning is this. It's the gut-wrenching sense of my own culpability so that what God gives us in Christ is actually seen in the context that we need it to be seen in or we simply don't value it, okay? So that's where we're going. No intentional pain, not trying to engender pornographic thoughts, okay? But what, what is that woman's experience? So remember this. Uh, think of it this way. We only get the story in John chapter 8. We get it sort of halfway through. 
But for this gal, her husband's away. And let's just assume she's in her own house. And guys, the windows are closed. The doors are closed. And she's there with that unfaithful other in the privacy of her domicile. And no one else knows as far as she's thinking. And so in her moment of indiscretion, and again, I, I, I just want you to feel it. So with no clothing on, right? Hiding in the dark. I'm in the act of sin and shame and guilt. And suddenly the TV lights come on. That is, the door opens. If you're her, what is that? Suddenly her mind is reeling. Who's coming in the door? And it would be a bunch of guys. And it's men only. And you know what they do? They ignore the guy that's with her. That's funny, isn't it? This whole thing's a setup, by the way, just like the TV shows. They ignore the guy and they grab her. Now she's in the moment, in the act of unfaithfulness, she's naked and a bunch of men march into the bedroom. And they grab her. And they're pulling her out. Now you can imagine she is reeling, she's grabbing for anything she can get to cover up her physical nakedness, she's feeling the moral nakedness, and they drag her out of her house through the streets. By the way, this happens to be in Jerusalem. And they don't take her just any place. They take her up to the temple. They take her to the Temple Mount. Now, you can imagine this gal's life. This is the place she does not go. And this is the place she does not want to go. This is Yahweh's house. This is where people confess their sin and sacrifices are made. This is where the holy God lives and that's where she does not go. And yet that's where she's drug and she's put in front of a Jewish rabbi and she's accused of a sin she cannot deny. She's been caught in the act. And they have stones in their hand and they say to this rabbi, Jesus, the law of Moses says this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? Now remember, they're trying to catch Jesus. They know Jesus is a kind and compassionate young rabbi. They're trying to trip him up. We're pitting Jesus' compassion against the law. That's the thinking. He'll try and get her off, but we know we've got the law on our side. He'll be caught and we'll get him. So what's it like for that woman in that moment? So she's been exposed. She's drugged through the light of day. She's on the Temple Mount. She's before a well-known rabbi. She's accused, and the stones of her accusers are in her hand. And you can imagine her life's flashing before her eyes, right? Because at any moment, the stones of judgment may fall down on her. She's on the edge of eternity. She's on the precipice of the end of her life, and she has no excuse, and there's nothing she can do. What's going through my mind? What does that feel like? My guilt and my shame are exposed. I can't deny anything. I'm brought before the holy God and his holy house, and I'm accused before this prominent rabbi, this Jewish leader. How am I feeling in this moment? What's going through my mind? What's going through my heart? The judgment of God on my unholy sin. Now pause there. Are we getting the picture? Not only the picture in our head, but what that feels like. And then for us, if that was us, if this was here Sunday morning, let's say the pornography we viewed in our library or our den or our phone was, was put up on this screen right now and everybody knows that's Mike's or that's John's or that's Kent. What would that feel like? My guilt, my shame, just 
on display for everybody to see. Where God lives in God's holy presence, what would that feel like? Or my unclean thoughts towards someone else's wife or daughter or husband or son, and suddenly it's exposed and everybody sees it. Cheaters TV, and I'm the one whose guilt and shame is on display. What does that feel like for me? Guys, the hateful things we've said about others that we didn't say to them, the things we've stolen, the lies we've told, all the things that we thought nobody else knew, if that's us against the wall and the stones are in the accuser's hands, how do we feel if it's us? See, now it's not us living vicariously through the guilt or shame of others. What's that feel like for me? What's that do for my experience, my shameful deeds of darkness that deserve the judgment of God out in the open so that we merely wait for justice to fall and crush us just as that woman was waiting for the stones to start? What does it feel like? What does it feel like? Of course, in John's Gospel, the young rabbi says, let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. Now you notice here, Jesus does not upend the law. He does not say the law does not apply. He upholds the law. He simply says, but let the one who hasn't sinned be the first to throw a stone. Let the one who himself hasn't broken the law in any manner, let him be the one that throws that first stone. And by doing so, he disqualifies them all. But he says this, When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, artistic license on the image there, Jesus stood up, said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now again, what's going through that gal's mind? Now she has been on the brink of eternity. She was moments away from feeling stones crush her body and take her life. And suddenly, she's covered in forgiveness. And the crowd that accused her is gone. And it's only Yahweh himself and the person of the Son standing there saying, I don't condemn you. Now you go and sin no more. She's clothed instead of with stones, with forgiveness. What does that feel like to her in that moment? Now no doubt her mind and her emotions are still reeling. She's still just trying to catch up with everything that's going on. But don't you think she felt some giddy sense of, I'm, I'm alive? I was guilty. And this rabbi, we know as God the Son, Yahweh himself has forgiven me. What would life, with that experience, brink of death, judgment, shame on my head, going down in flames, suddenly the sun is shining again. What would that feel like for her? Giddy, thankful, rejoicing, I can't believe this has happened, I can't believe God's grace on me. It would change the way she saw every day of her life afterwards, don't you think? It would change the way she saw everything. The air would smell a little sweeter, right? The sunshine would appear a little more golden. Every day she would know was a gift. She had escaped death because someone stood between her and the law and said, I'll forgive you. God's grace on her. It informs every day of her life after that. Now that story, variations on the theme, that's your story and mine if you're a Christian. The sins may not be the same. The settings are not the same. 
But the key elements of the story are, the key elements of the story are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is your story, or at least variations on the theme. Do we know we've been brought back from the edge of death and eternal judgment? Do we know that? Do we feel the benefit of it? Do we feel the gift of eternal life as this glory that informs all of our experience? Do we bask in the grace of God that saves sinners like us? Is that our experience? Do we feel the benefit of it? So you guys know we're still in the series Foundation. And we've been talking about key teachings in God's Word that we want to do what Jesus exhorted us to do, to hear God's Word, to take it in, and to act on it, to live on it. He said if we do that, we're building a life on a rock. We're building a life that will stand the storms of lifetime, but also prepare us to enter eternity successfully. We've held off intentionally this theme of God's grace, which is what we're looking at today, until we had a doctrinal basis or context to put it in. If you talk to people about God's grace and good news, if they don't know there's bad news, there's no context for it. We don't feel the benefit of grace if we don't know we stand in the need of it. So he started by saying, we know that there's an all-powerful divine creator God, and that's not us. That the fishbowl of this cosmos we live in was created by someone, and it's not us. There's a divine being, a God. We've also said that we sin, and our sin is like the worst stench in the universe to a God who smells all things perfectly and forever. It never changes. And that our sin, that abhorrent smell, as it were, to God, it would bring, in God's justice, it would bring us His rightful wrath and judgment down on our heads in what He calls the second death or the lake of fire. That's the setting for God's grace. If we don't get that, we don't have a context for God's grace. So if God gives us what we deserve, you and I get justice. That woman gets stoned. If you get what you deserve, she gets stoned, and you and I get God's justice, and that means eternal death. But if God removes the just penalty, it's not because we deserve a stay of execution. It is His grace and His mercy. If we, if we get anything other than justice, we've got mercy and grace. So what does a life lived in the reality of God's incredible grace, what does that look like? And what does life lived on the rock of God's grace, what does that feel like? I think if we don't feel this, we don't get it. If it's not emotional, if it's not visceral, I don't think we get the benefit of living in God's grace. We talk about grace this morning, by the way. Uh, the Greek word is charis. And our word charity comes from that. Love, charity. So does the term charismatic. That means a grace gift. But grace, as we're using it this morning, is this. God's loving and benevolent disposition toward us based on His own will and Jesus' saving work and not our merit. Again, remember for all of us, if we get what we deserve, we get judgment. If we get more than we deserve, we get grace. That's what we're talking about this morning. Now, grace comes in a variety of packages. Thanks. And the first we call God's common grace. God's common grace. This is a big deal. So again, if all the world is under God's judgment, 
but God's judgment doesn't fall, then everybody on the world today is getting God's grace. Everybody's getting God's grace. When we say common grace, we mean it's the grace of God that everybody experiences. It's open to all of us. It's not to a select few. Everybody gets God's grace. Every day God withholds judgment is a grace gift. And that means every pleasure and joy we experience is by God's grace. Every beat of the heart, every breath taken in, every family formed, every child born is a grace gift from God. Guys, you see this throughout the Bible. You see it Old Testament, you see New Testament. In Sermon on the Mount, Kent's taken us through where we passed this some time ago. But in Matthew 5.45, Jesus said, the rabbi who spoke to the woman in John 8 said, God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That God's common grace is he sends the sun and he sends the rain. And those are the key elements for life for anything and everything on this planet. God's common grace is showering down on all of us today by the sunlight that comes down and by the rains he gives. To the person who says they'll believe in God if he proves himself to them, you can say the sun rose and the rains have come. God has demonstrated his presence and his grace adequately. And by the way, this is the appeal Paul makes in Acts 14. He's talking to guys at Lystra, and they're, they're uh, Gentiles, and they're idolaters. And he's trying to tell them about the living and true God. And he says, in part, God didn't leave himself without a witness because he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And think about that for just a second. People who deserve God's judgment, that's what they deserve. Paul says God gives you fruitful seasons. He satisfies your hearts with food and gladness. Uh, Kathy's birthday was last Friday, and we were in old Chicago. And I'm struck as we're sitting there, and this is a fairly common experience. You're in a busy restaurant for supper. I'm not talking McDonald's or Burger King, but a real restaurant where there's clattering plates and there's waiters and waitresses. And people are eating and drinking and they're having fun and you hear laughter and conversations, right? And I wonder to myself, how many people here know God? How many people here know they're enjoying all this good stuff because that's God's grace to them? That we're believers and we sit here and it's great and it's fun and it's encouraging. How many people here know that all of this is God's grace gift to them in that moment? Every time that happens, every setting that happens. It's a grace gift from God. We deserve judgment. That's not what we're getting. He's giving us gladness of heart and seasons and sunshine and rain. And God says throughout the scripture, all of that is his grace to us. You see this in spades in Psalm 69, uh, 65, starting at verse 9. David said it this way. You can close your eyes if you want and just listen to this. It's so good. He says of God, you visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Of course, water in the Middle East is a big deal, isn't it? You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Wherever God's wagon went, there's abundance overflowing. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. 
they shout and sing together for joy. Guys, if you drive down a Kansas highway or byway in the summer or in the fall and you see those wheat fields ready for harvest or that corn crop standing proud, if you stop and listen, David says you'll hear them singing God's grace. That is God's grace. The rain and the sun. The pleasure that he gives man. Listen to this variation on the theme from Psalm 104. It's, it's more of the same. You cause the grass to grow, etc. But here he says, you bring forth food for, from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. See, this is all this picture of God's overflowing grace and goodness to everyone on the earth. That when you see the seasons and the sun and the rain and the harvest, and that the whole picture about oil, my face shines, that's God's favor is on my life. My face shines. My heart is strengthened. I'm glad. The, the whole imagery of food and wine and oil is abundance and blessing. And that's what God's doing for all of us every day. We deserve judgment, and this is what he's giving us instead. So the witness of God's common grace is all around us if we have eyes to see it. So guys, every breath we take, every meal we enjoy, every season of life, every one of those moments of joy and gladness, those are all grace gifts to everybody on the earth. To those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that's Romans 1, and deny the reality of God, they're in fact drawing life and breath because of God's grace. They're not under judgment today because of God's grace. Those who never turn their head to heaven to give thanks and praise live a life of rebellion by heaven's gracious permission. They may not know, they may not acknowledge that they're living under God's grace, but they are. They still are. Some question why God will eventually judge all of humanity, and the real question is why he hasn't already. And in large measure, the answer is just this amazing, incredible grace. So there's a common grace. There's a grace that everybody on the earth experiences, all of us who deserve judgment but don't get it. And we call this, we can call this a number of things. Your study sheet calls it God's saving grace in Christ. You could call it God's particular grace. That's what some theologians call it. But there's God's saving grace in Christ. And by this we mean that not only is everyone getting God's common grace, but made available to all is God's saving grace in Christ. That reconciliation, what that woman in John 8 got. Forgiveness. What does that look like? What does God's grace and forgiveness look like? In Acts 15.11, Peter was talking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem about the Gentiles. And the early churches had a tough time. What does this look like? We're Jews, they're Gentiles, we've kept the law, they don't. What does that look like? And Peter says in part this, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Pete said, Jews and Gentiles are like, are saved by God's grace in Christ. That this isn't just the common grace, the stuff we get in life, this is God's saving grace to us in Christ. It's reconciliation. It's sins forgiven. It's guilt and shame exposed on one hand, but fully covered and forgiven on the other so that we have right standing before God. The key passage, and this is on your study sheet, is out of Ephesians 2. And I'll read this just because it puts the whole thing in perspective. If you start there at the second half of verse 3, Paul says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says we were under the righteous wrath and judgment of God. But God was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
even when we were dead in our trespasses. So when spiritually we're cut off, we can't do anything to gain God's grace or favor. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. And Paul wants us to get the picture. By grace you have been saved. You were dead. God made you alive. You couldn't say yourself. God saved you. It's all because of God's grace. He raised us up with him, Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And he says again, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Everybody's got a common grace. They're saving grace in Jesus. And it says here it's just received through faith. We don't work for it. We didn't earn his favor. We don't earn salvation. He gives it to us. It's a grace gift provided by Christ. Now, this wasn't this wasn't free. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to say in John eight, John eight. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Was the woman was she judicially by the law? Should she have been condemned? We say absolutely. So how can Jesus forgive her? He can only forgive her if something is done about her sin, right? So when we're saying there's saving grace in Christ, we're not saying it's free. We're not saying God can just say, oh, I forgive you. Romans 3 on your study sheet puts it this way. We're justified, that is, we're declared by God to be in right standing with him. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood be received by faith propitiation's a strange word it means to make it means to reconcile two different parties and specifically the imagery here in use by that word is if you were jewish and you knew something about the ark of the covenant the top of the ark of the covenant was called the mercy seat and inside the ark was the law and when the high priest came in he splattered blood on the top of that box the mercy seat the thought was this when god looked down from heaven the law would have been visible, as it were, to God in the box, but the blood on the mercy seat covered the law. The blood expunged, covered over what the law condemned. And that's what God's done for us in Christ. So when we say God's saving grace in Christ, we're not talking about free to God or to Jesus. We're talking about free to us. But he could only offer us that grace because Jesus bore our sins. Because Jesus took our place. When Jesus says to the woman in John 8, I don't condemn you, he knows he is going to atone for her sin. It hasn't happened yet. Her sin was put on the credit card payment plan, as were all the sins of everyone in the Old Testament. God could forgive them because Jesus would die for their sins. God could then offer graciously the grace gift of forgiveness. 2 Timothy, I'll let you look up later. Titus 3 and verses 4 through 7 says, in part, we're justified by His grace. That's the thought. All of us get God's common grace. Those who simply embrace Jesus by faith get God's saving grace in Christ. There's also, guys, there's more grace to be had for believers. I'd call this God's uncommon grace. So common grace to all, saving grace in Christ, new relationship with God, forgiveness of our sins. But for those who've embraced Christ through faith, there's now this whole world of uncommon graces in every aspect of your life. There's no life, no element of life for the believer that isn't touched, infused, filled, 
and flowing over with God's uncommon graces. In every one of Paul's letters, do you remember how they start? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read commentaries, they'll tell you, well, Paul's giving a semi-formal, typical introduction to his letter. As if that minimizes it, but the words are absolutely true. That's theology. When Paul starts the letter before he says anything else, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you get. You stand in this grace from Jesus. Guys, there is grace from God in his word. We talk about reading the Bible. Read your Bible, read your Bible. It comes across as a mantra. It becomes monotone. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But if you find yourself at a place in life where you say, I need God's grace, I can tell you where to go to get some. You go to God's word. You know, the whole thing that the scene in Acts 20, the Apostle Paul is going back to Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen. He's going to be arrested. That arrest will eventually end in his death years later. But when he sails down along the Asian coast, he calls for the elders of Ephesus and he tells them, guys, I'll never see you again. Our relationship practically face to face, it ends here. Because God has already told me what I'm going into. But with that in his mind, knowing he won't be there to help them in the future, he says to them in Acts 20, I commend you to God. I commit you with full confidence to God. And I commit you, I commend you to the word of his grace. God's grace to you doesn't end with my departure. I'm commending you to God and to the word of his grace. If you find yourself at a point in life where you need some grace, pick up the Bible. Get in the scriptures because God has stored, if you will, that's like a granary, and his grace is in there. And when you go to his word, he will give you grace from the truth of his word. Paul commended them to God and to the word of his grace. Guys, you and I have grace adequate for generosity, for helping and serving others. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9. God's able to make all grace abound to you. Why? So that you'll have sufficiency in all things at all times and you can abound in every good work. You know, I hope as Christians that we have an impulse in us that we want to be helpful to others. And we see a need and we want to address it, whether that's spiritual or material, emotional, whatever that might be. Well, Paul here says that God, through his grace, He'll cause you in your life to abound in such a way that you'll have this overflowing excess by which you can reach out and help and serve others. God's grace overflowing in you so that that grace can overflow into the lives of others. God's grace to us ends up blessing others as well. God gives us grace adequate for suffering. Guys, no one wants to suffer. But what you'll find is simply by living life in this world, you'll experience suffering. And also, you know, sometimes sometimes you'll find that God sends suffering into your life. And that's what Paul found in 2 Corinthians 12. So, you know, here's the guy who suffered shipwreck, beatings, imprisonment. He was stoned, by the way. He knew what it was like to feel stones hit his body. They thought he was dead. Here's the guy with all that suffering, and God said, it's not enough. You need more suffering, Paul. So he sent Paul, a messenger of Satan, to buffet his body. That's wild, isn't it? You haven't suffered enough, Paul. Because of all the glories I've shown you and the grace that you've experienced from me, you're going to be tempted to be proud, and so I'm going to give you some more suffering, this messenger of Satan, to buffet your body. And Paul's not feeling the love. He's not feeling the grace. He says, he says specifically three times, I I implored the Lord, I cried out specifically about this, 
Lord, would you take this element of suffering away? Would you get it out of my life? Please. I implored. Please. Pretty please. In Jesus' name, would you get it out of my life? And God says, no, because my grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in your weakness. You need this suffering so you can experience more of my grace. My grace will uphold you when you, you think you're past everything you can you can endure. No, my grace will sustain you even through that and past that. So whatever it is that we feel the need of in our own life, if it's physical, material, emotional, whatever, God says, no, my grace is sufficient. My grace is adequate to carry you through that. You've got a great passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is grace for comfort and hope. And the believers in Thessalonica, they'd come to faith in Christ, and guys, persecution started immediately. They were in the fire of persecution immediately. And Paul says this to them, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You're in the midst of, of hard times of persecution and suffering, Comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort and good hope through God's grace in your moment of need. And the last one in this list is Hebrews 4.16. This is a great one. So if I feel the need of God's grace, I can go to his word because his grace is laid up for me there. I can also go to his throne. It says there, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know if you remember, but we quoted an Old Testament Psalms uh, verse in prior weeks in which we said God's judge, uh, God's throne is established on justice. Guys, you and I have met God at his throne of justice in Christ's atoning sacrifice. And now here in Hebrews, his throne isn't called the throne of justice for us now. It's called the throne of grace. So that when you need grace, we go to God in prayer to the throne of his grace to find mercy and help in our time of need, whatever that might be. God's throne. It's not a throne of justice, judgment. That's been settled in Christ. It's now a throne of grace. So when you need help, we go to God to find his grace. God's grace, by the way, is always in Christ. A grace is not a commodity you pull off the shelf. So I don't say, God, I need some grace, and I get the salt shaker or the pepper shaker, and I shake out a little grace. But God's grace to you and I is always in the person of Jesus. If I need more of God's grace, I'm really saying I need the experience of more of Christ, the life of Christ, more of his experience in my situation. That's what I'm after. I'm not after a commodity. I, I'm after the person. God's grace is always coming to us through Christ. Uh, There's a great passage in John 1, and, and specifically verses 14 through 17 and you remember in john 1 that that john's let us know that that jesus is the logos he's the expression of god's word and will he's also yahweh he's already connected jesus to the creator god in genesis 1 and and he keeps doing that in this theme when he says this in verse 14 he says the word became flesh god the son became flesh he lived among us by the way, typically in the old uh, King James, that was translated, he tabernacled with us. Because in the, Gre the Greek Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament, when John says this, God, 
tabernacled with Israel in the wilderness. Yahweh was with Israel in the wilderness in a tent. And this is the same word. Jesus tabernacled with his people, Israel, in, the, in his own body, in his own person. So Yahweh's here again. The uh, seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You remember how God described himself to Moses in the Old Testament? He said, I'm the God of loyal love and truth. That's the same phrases used here of Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. He says in verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Think of the woman in John 8. The law condemns. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's grace, you get grace on grace. When you get Jesus, you get grace after grace after grace. When I need more of God's grace, I need more of the experience of Christ, of his life, of his person, of his work. Uh, you've got some other verses. For time's sake, I'll let you read them later. Uh, it's interesting, the Bible, the last verse of the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. That's a great way to end, isn't it? The, the last word of the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. You stand in God's grace. You breathe in God's grace. You live in God's grace. You eat, drink, etc. Guys, you know, generations ago, there was an individual, there was a guy. When he was young, his mother was still alive, and she taught him the scripture. He had to memorize the word. She was a godly gal, and she died when he was still a youth. And he grew up to be absolutely the worst version of himself possible, and he was quite proud about it. He was not like the woman in John 8. He did not hide his sin. Guilt and shame had no appeal to him. He sinned, he called, he said it this way, I sinned with a high hand. That's a biblical phrase. That means I thumb my nose at heaven. I told God, this is where you can stick it. This is my life, this is what I'm doing. Come hell or high water. He said, I sinned with a high hand and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. And he did it. Through high times and low, this guy traveled around the world. He had some very pleasurable experiences and some otherwise. But his life, he said, basically, I'll do as I please. I don't have guilt or shame. I sin against heaven, and I'm glad to say so. But there came an event in his life when he was sailing across the North Atlantic. He was sailing back home to England, and there was a large storm. And this guy woke up in the middle of the night. Water was coming into the ship, and he knew, I'm about to drown. I'm going to meet my maker. I'm going to stand before the God of justice like the woman in John 8, and I have no plea. I'm guilty. And this guy, in that moment, he cried out to God, and he asked God, save a wretched sinner like me. And you know what happened? The ship, the, the ship shifted, and the cargo inside the ship closed the hole that was letting the water in. And God saved that guy, and he saved the crew, and, and he went on, and he got home. And then later he wrote, the lyrics to the hymn that we opened with this morning, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And what God did for John Newton, he'll do for any of us. Whether we're sinning with a high hand against heaven or those secret sins nobody else knows except us, until the light of God's countenance or word or exposure of one sort or another comes in, the only plea we have on God's grace in saving us is Jesus. The grace we want we're glad for common grace, guys. We want more than common grace. We want saving grace. We want uncommon grace poured out in Christ. So let me just ask you as we close, just a couple questions just to reflect on. 
The first is, have I simply said yes to saving grace of God in Christ? If I haven't done that, guys, common grace is a great thing. But it only lasts as long as you draw breath. And then you face God's judgment. Have we embraced God's saving grace in Christ? We have. Are we living a life of humility? Guys, if you've, if you've stood before the judgment of God, and you know that the only reason you draw breath and continue to live is God's grace, there's no place for pride. Humility becomes a Christian because we know it's only God's grace that has let us escape judgment. Humility. Am I living with a consistent thankfulness because of the grace of God? I draw breath. I can eat food. I can enjoy another season of life because of God's grace. Am I thankful? Am I quick to pray for others? If I see my own need exposed in the light of God's word and then covered by Jesus' saving grace, I know that's my need. Am I quick to pray for the needs of others? And especially am I quick to share with them the same message of grace that I've believed? Have I introduced them to the Savior, the saving grace in Christ? Am I speaking of God's amazing grace to others? Am I drawing near to Jesus in Scripture, prayer, and fellowship to experience more of God's grace? I'll find it there. Am I praying? Am I bringing those needs to the throne of grace? That's the life lived in God's grace. We've got to have a context of the judgment we stand under for our own sins by God's righteous standard, like the woman caught, if we're to have a context that's adequate to understand what God has done for us in Christ. That grace has to have a context. If we don't feel it, if we don't feel the benefit of it, we're not living in the good of it yet. So we have to come to the reality of knowing my sin, hidden or out in the open, deserved God's judgment. Jesus intervened. That young rabbi intervened and said, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more, friends. That is the grace of God. That's the grace of God we live in. And we invite others to as well. Father, would you show us uh, the eyes of our heart? Would you open them up? Would you enlighten them? That we can simply breathe and take in more of the reality of your amazing, blessed grace. God, would you help us to rejoice in seasons of gladness, to walk humbly, thankfully, and prayerfully before you. Lord, would you help us? Would you inspire us to share with others the story and the hope of amazing grace that we have, that they can have too. In Jesus' name.